The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. In line with the Führer's policy of fair treatment for all the prisoners, we are going to provide you with a little entertainment. It's about time. I hope it's either Braun and her all-girl orchestra. Or maybe it's Rudolf Hess and his parachute act. It could be Hermann Goering and his dancing bear. Hermann Goering is a dancing bear. Quiet! Quiet, everybody, you understand? It's nice to see that you're all in such a good humor tonight. I was hoping you would be receptive. Don't keep us in suspense, Commandant. What's the entertainment? You are going to have the pleasure of listening to a very popular radio program. Oh, boy, I hope it's Burton Marge. Schultz, turn on the speaker. Yeah, boy, This is Berlin Betty. I have a special invitation to some of you wonderful boys at Starlog 13. On these cold winter nights, wouldn't you love to snuggle up with me? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. She's not getting me up to her apartment, no matter what she says. We could get together in front of a nice, warm fireplace with a bottle of wine, and all you'd have to do is make a little speech. I think it's time you told your brothers in arms how you really feel, that you know the war is hopeless. You didn't tell us it was going to be a comedy show, Commandant. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January the 12th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Apparently, we're living in an age of fake news, and the news stories about fake news leave me feeling like someone's still faking it. After all, there's nothing new about fake news, and fake news isn't news. But the fake news stories, both fake and about fake news stories, are something else that itself borders on fake news, or something worse. And then there's the real news that people willfully do not choose to believe. Is that about right, Robert? I think you about summed it up, Bob. Uh, <laughs> Are I we think. done for the show for today? <laughs> <laughs> I think if I can get my head around all those fake, uh, yeah, okay. those falsies. <laughs> <laughs> well, before Robert kicks off our theme for the day, never forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. So, Bob, let's start off with a bit of history. Put some of this in context. April 2nd, 1801. Oh, boy, we're going back. Yeah, let's back a bit. <laughs> During the Battle of Copenhagen, when uh, signaled to retreat, then-British Vice Admiral Nelson raised his telescope to his blind eye and said, I really do not see the signal. Nelson's bravery uh, under fire and facing formidable odds, went on to win the battle, and the phrase, to turn a blind eye, entered the English language. The British term, Nelsonian knowledge, has come into legal usage uh, in Britain and in Canada and the United States. The terms willful blindness or willful ignorance or uh, contrived ignorance are used. These terms have come to mean the same thing, willful dishonesty. It was British Lord Millet who said in 2002, 
Quote, it is dishonest for a man deliberately to shut his eyes to facts which he would prefer not to know. If he does so, he is taken to have actual knowledge of the facts to which he shut his eyes, unquote. Meaning, of course, that you know, but you just choose to ignore the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, unlike the brave act of Nelson, willful ignorance is an act of cowardice and dishonesty. It is the act of denial. And over the past few years, the concept of willful ignorance has been very prominent in the political realm. We see it every day. People have been presented with facts and knowledge and true news, which they might find shatters their worldview or disrupts their concept as to what the political world should be. And they consequently dismiss, ignore, or turn a blind eye to it. They refuse to know things which they would prefer not to know. Now, when Hollywood actress Meryl Streep used up her acceptance speech three seconds to criticize President-elect Donald Trump for supposedly mocking a crippled reporter, I found yet one more example of willful ignorance. We may have touched on this supposed mocking of New York Times reporter Serge Kovaleski on a previous show, but given Streep's performance, it bears repeating. Back into history again, it all started after the Islamic attack of the World Trade Center in New York City by Saudi Arabian nationals on September 11, 2001. Television coverage at the time showed thousands of Palestinians dancing in the streets in celebration of the death and destruction, and there were news reports of smaller celebrations in New Jersey, just across the river from the falling towers. You must remember that the plot for the very first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993 was actually hatched by jihadists in Jersey City, and immediately after the 9-11 attacks, police made several raids and arrests in at least 10 towns and cities in New Jersey of the usual suspects. On September 18th, 2001, Washington Post reporter Serge F. Kovaleski and Frederick Kunkel reported the following, quote, In Jersey City, within hours of two jetliners plowing into the World Trade Center, law enforcement authorities detained and questioned a number of people who were allegedly seen celebrating the attacks and holding tailgate-style parties on rooftops while they watched the devastation on the other side of the river, unquote. A CBS television program aired on September 16, 2001, told of a swarm of people celebrating on a rooftop in Jersey City. Now, fast forward to an interview with former Democratic Party political advisor and White House Communications Director under President Bill Clinton, George Stephanopoulos, on November 22, 2015. In that interview... Trump said that he saw on TV thousands of New Jersey Muslims celebrating the 9-11 attack, obviously confusing the two accounts, as apparently there is no video of the swarm of people celebrating in New Jersey. Now, when people started to check on the veracity of Trump's claim, they found the September 18th Washington Post article by Kovaleski. So Kovaleski then made the following statement, apparently distancing himself from the original report. Quote, I certainly do not remember anyone saying that thousands or even hundreds of people were celebrating. That was not the case, as best as I can remember, unquote. Trump claimed that pressure had been put on Kovaleski to retract his report, or at least step away from it, on September 18, 2001. And during a rally on July 29th, Trump referred to Kovaleski's qualification of his original article as a kind of groveling in the face of pressure from the Democrats. Now, in expressing his comments about Kovaleski, 
Trump flayed his arms around in a pattern he has exhibited several times before to show someone vacillating or groveling. You know, the, the, um, the, yeah. the way he flayed his arms around there, Bob. Kovaleski has a crippling condition called arthrogryposis. His arms are fixed in a frozen position in front of his chest, or at least his right arm is. Trump claims he never knew of the reporter's disability. After all, he was a newspaper reporter, not a, a television reporter or anything like that. You wouldn't see him on TV. He was a newspaper man. Now, people took the video of the Trump with his arms and hands flailing about and captured a split second during that video where Trump's arm and hand match almost perfectly, by accident, the position that Kovaleski's arm and hand are locked into due to his disability. They put the images of Trump and Kovaleski side by side and then claimed that Trump was deliberately mocking Kovaleski's disability. This same dishonest trick of screen capturing Trump's arm and hand in the same fixed position as that of Kovaleski was repeated by the same Washington Post in an article published online only two days ago. Ironically, in an article contrived to prove that Donald Trump mocked Kovaleski's disability, the article is called, Meryl Streep was right, Donald Trump did mock a disabled reporter. Now, in response, people have put together a video montage going back several years of Trump making the exact same flailing motions with his arms to mimic groveling people or people who are re retracting something. His mimicking of Kovaleski was just the same as it was for those other people, including Ted Cruz and an American general, none of which, of course, are disabled. So the claim that Trump was mocking a person's disability is patently false to those who want to do their homework. So now we have to ask the question, why would Meryl Streep, the Washington Post, and apparently millions of Americans continue to believe that Trump was mocking a person's stability when, as I said before, if you do your homework, you will discover that he was not. And of course, the answer is either ignorance or willful ignorance. It just may be that Streep did not know of everything I just said, or it just may be that she knew but chose to turn a blind eye to the truth. Now, if Streep was ignorant of the truth, it begs the question, how could she appear before an audience of 20 million people with a prepared written speech intended to deliberately embarrass and ridicule the president-elect, mocking him, if you will, without first researching her facts as I just did in preparation for this show, and there's not 20 million people listening to me, and yet I do the legwork <laughs> to go right. out there and find some facts. If Streep was aware of the truth, but in her willful ignorance chose to embarrass and ridicule and mock the president-elect, the motivation is the same. It doesn't matter. Streep's motivation can only be malice. Anyone who willfully chooses to ignore or distort the truth in an effort to gain personally from it or sway opinion is guilty of malice. To be clear, the definition of malice is the intention or desire to do evil. Now, the left's philosophy is malicious. And to help them propagate it, they willfully blind themselves to the truth so that they may continue 
causing mischief and mayhem guiltlessly, just as Meryl Streep did this week. An actor's only job is to enter the lives of people who are different from us and let you feel what that feels like. And there were many, many, many powerful performances this year that did exactly that, breathtaking, compassionate work. But there was one performance this year that stunned me. It, it sank its hooks in my heart, not because it was good. It was, there was nothing good about it, but it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. It was that moment when the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country imitated a disabled reporter, someone he outranked in privilege, power, and the capacity to fight back. It, it kind of broke my heart when I saw it, and I still can't get it out of my head because it wasn't in a movie. It was real life. And this instinct to humiliate when it's modeled by someone in the public platform, by someone powerful. It filters down into everybody's life because it kind of gives permission for other people to do the same thing. Disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. Okay, go up with that thing. Okay, this brings me to the press. We need the principled press to hold power to account, to, to call them on the carpet. Every outrage. That's why, that's why our founders enshrined the press and its freedoms in our Constitution. So I only ask the famously well-heeled Hollywood foreign press and all of us in our community to join me in supporting the committee to protect journalists because we're going to need them going forward and they'll need us to safeguard the truth. Suit's gonna be filed in the morning. Yeah. And you understand everyone, and I mean everyone, everyone will have a stringer waiting at the clerk's office for the complaint. Yes. You've read a complaint, it's a long list of grievances that go well beyond the scope of any rational definition of relevance. Yes, sir. Tomorrow's just an exercise in public shaming. Yeah, we're gonna be painted with humiliation, mostly you and Will and Mac, and a little bit me. So you don't feel you're foggy on the reality. I wish I were less aware of the reality. I'd like to be stupid right now. Good. Charlie? Let me finish. Aren't you the final arbiter of whether a race gets called? Yeah. Shouldn't you be downstairs? That's how important it is that I convince you to accept my resignation from Wills. I think the election's we're pretty important. we the next exit poll dump. I've got a minute. People have been fired for making much smaller mistakes than we People have been incarcerated for making smaller so mistakes. So there's that, and that spread resentment in the industry, but that's nothing. Forget that. Okay. Forget that everything that's gone on inside the organization will be laid out on a table for everyone to scrutinize, which sure as we're standing here is what is going to happen. Forget that. All right. If a news outlet doesn't have credibility, it doesn't matter what else it has. That's a fact. I'd rather be less aware of reality. That was a perfect clip, Bob. Where'd you find that one? Uh, it was from uh, the newsroom. 
Oh, the TV show. The TV show, yes. I've only the, watched the maybe version. the first or second episode of yeah, that. Yeah, I've only watched a few myself. Yeah. Well, you know, I recently watched the movie Vertigo, uh, one of Hitchcock's best, of course. If you recall the storyline, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character is a detective and is asked by a friend to look into the strange behavior of his wife. Do you remember the movie, Bob? Vaguely, yeah. yeah. That was great. Kim Novak was in it, too, yeah. Now, unbeknownst to Stewart, the woman he's following is not his wife, um, the, the guy who contracted to him, uh, but an, an actress lookalike. And it's all a, a really elaborate plot for Stewart's friend to kill his real wife with Stewart acting as a witness or a possible fall guy. Now, in the course of his detective work, Stewart falls in love with the actress, and then after her apparent death, he just happens to meet her on the street totally by accident, unaware that it's the same person. They begin dating, and one night as they're preparing to go out, the actress puts on a necklace, which she wore when she was impersonating the wife. Now, this incongruity is noticed by Stuart, and all of a sudden, his reality is shattered. You can see it on his face. All because of the little slip-up by the actress in keeping a memento of her acting job in which she pulled the wool mm. over, over Stuart's eyes. Powerful, powerful scene. Now, the point of the story, in the context of our discussion here today, is that in reality, as Ayn Rand said, there can be no contradictions. If you find a contradiction, you have to check your premises. Another example from Hollywood is in the excellent movie The Truman Show. Jim Carrey's character Truman is oblivious to the fact that he's living inside a contrived world under a dome and constantly being watched by a television audience. Until one day, a studio light with the word Sirius, as in the star Sirius, falls from the sky and lands at his feet and smashes. He begins to question his reality and, and discovers the truth about it. Because of this incongruity, there can be no contradictions. Now, Meryl Streep, in her tirade against Donald Trump, speaks to the absurdity of our reality as compared to the make-believe world of Hollywood. And yet, ironically, she and people like her are oblivious to the contradictions about them. Now, I'm going to dig up something here that a lot of people was thought to have been put to bed. But you know something? It's not. And it is an example of the willful blindness and the incongruity we see around us. One of the most notable contradictions that we find today in the last few uh, years was the release of President Obama's birth certificate on April 27, 2011. In an effort to quell the so-called birther controversy, people were saying, if you recall, that Obama didn't get the presidency uh, legitimately because they thought that he may have been born out of the country to um, parents who may not have been uh, U.S. citizens. In other words, he didn't fulfill that section of the Constitution, which says that you have to be a natural-born citizen of the United States. To be president. Uh, to be president, right. yeah. You can be any other, hold any other office. But for presidency, you have to be a natural-born citizen. So there was a great debate about what is a natural-born citizen. And that was the controversy. Now, I talked about the issue on the show uh, number 189 back in May of 11 when uh, they released that birth certificate. Now, the White House claimed that the birth certificate that they posted on their website in a PDF format was Obama's long-form birth certificate obtained from the state of Hawaii. Now, as soon as it was released, however, people noticed that the PDF could be taken apart in layers in Adobe Illustrator. 
This was not a simple photocopy of a document allegedly typed up in 1961, well before the personal computer and Adobe Photoshop or Illustrator. This was a computered, doctored PDF file. Now, all of the major media outlets ignored this contradiction. And it's a glaring contradiction. It was left to so-called fringe conservative media people like Alex Jones to bring it to the attention of those who would listen. Now, I personally went to the White House's website, downloaded the document in question, loaded it into Adobe Illustrator, and was surprised to find that, at least on this point, Alex Jones was correct. The document was built of layers. It was an obvious forgery, a fake. Six years later, Sheriff Joe Arpaio of Arizona held a press conference about the forged birth certificate. He had evidence that some of the data from the certificate was lifted directly from the birth certificate of another person born around the same time, one Joanna Ahnee, spelled A-H apostrophe N-E-E. He presented a video, this was only a few weeks ago, he presented a video showing exactly how the text from the boxes in Ani's birth certificate fit perfectly, absolutely perfectly, over the exact same text in Obama's alleged certificate that they posted on the WhiteHouse.gov's website. It was a slam dunk vindication for all of the so-called birthers that Obama's certificate was indeed a fake. Now, still... At least that PDF was... Uh, that's the only um, birth certificate that they released. No, but I'm thinking it's almost weird. Don't they know that people could take that PDF apart and look at it that way? You'd think that they would have at least printed a copy of it. Or taken a picture of and it. And then taken it. a picture of it and scanned it. And no. then you couldn't tell. Yeah, what they did, they must have had some newbie there putting this together in well, it's Illustrator still up now. and forgot to flatten what they call it. Flatten. Yeah. You, know, you know in Photoshop I, yeah. when you do layers, you flatten it at the end. Right. And uh, then all the layering information is gone, and it exactly. looks just like a scanned copy. So that's what that's why I'm suspicious about <laughs> the fact that they left it in this state. That's that's and that's, on that's the bizarre. official government website. Yes, and you know something? It's still there. Yeah, I know. It's still there to this day. I looked at it yesterday. It's still there. Now, with all this information, still the mainstream media were silent, absolutely silent, except but a few which dismissed the findings, calling Sheriff Arpaio a right-wing birther grandstanding his way to retirement. Associated Press, AP, had this to say on Arpaio's efforts in an article I just read yesterday. Quote, Arpaio closed his years-long investigation Thursday, ending a chapter that critics denounced a shameless ploy to raise money for his right-wing base, unquote. Wow. Not one word in that article on Arpaio's evidence. Just a personal attack on the man. Not once... Did they talk about the fact of um, Ani's birth certificate being the source of the information? They didn't even go to the problem to deny what he was saying. They didn't deny it. They didn't touch it. They just called Arpaio a right-wing nut, basically. That was the extent of the Associated Press's article on this. Oh, my. Now, here's the kicker. That same, as I said before, that same birth certificate is still available on the White House's website. I mean, you can just imagine if they took it down, that would almost be like an uh, admission of guilt. But no, what did they do? 
just like a Trump. I guess they pulled a Trump. You know, when Trump doesn't back down when he's uh, accused of something, he just, just just gets off a flippant remark like, no, 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 Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> I don't need yeah. all women, just Rosie O'Donnell. Likewise, the White House didn't do a thing. They just left it there. And people don't care. Now, presented with this contradiction, on the one hand, you've got the White House saying, see, the president was born when he said he was born in Hawaii. And you're presented with the contradiction of a obviously fake birth certificate, you would expect a full-fledged judicial inquiry into the obvious fake. You would expect a press conference from the president on why he or his White House staff felt it necessary to present an obviously faked birth certificate to the American people. Instead, nothing. The sounds of crickets. Not a peep out of the mainstream media. The only man with the courage to continue to look into the claim was Sheriff Arpaio. And still... With his new data regarding where some of the forged data came from, we hear nothing from the press. The media have become, what, willfully blind to evidence which would shatter their worldview. If this was actually true, I mean, Obama probably would not have lasted for the six years after that that he did. As a result, the public at large all remain ignorant of the glaring contradictions before them. Because you can't expect everybody out there to do what uh, some other people did. And what I did was just to go to the website, download it, put it in. a. How many people have Adobe Illustrator, right? Yeah. And to take it apart and see right before their eyes. And then again, how many think. people, even if knowing the fact, would care about it? They say, okay, who cares? Oh, true enough. True enough. But the thing is that this is, this is the willful ignorance of the Point press. Point taken, yes. And people trust the press. They trust the press to present them with this stuff and nothing. What? Uh, an abdication of their responsibility as, as a responsible journalist. You know, there's been a fraud perpetrated before everyone's eyes, and, a f and very few people seem to care. I agree that a forged birth certificate does not prove that Obama was not born in the United States. And like you said, Bob, you know, who cares? I don't care. That wouldn't seem to matter anyway, as the Supreme Court confirmed his inauguration, and they're the, they're the arbiters, right, who actually have the responsibility to make sure that the president fulfills the Constitution. Now, the fact that his mother was a U.S. citizen is apparently enough to make Obama eligible to be president anyway. But that's not the point. The point is the presentation of a forged, fake birth certificate and the non-response it received from those with the responsibility to question it, i.e. the media. The fake birth certificate is proof positive of the Nelson knowledge held by the left. The evidence is clear for them to see, but they put the telescope up to their blind eye and say, I really do not see the signal. Or, as it is often misquoted, I see no ships. In this case, I see no fake birth certificate. But unlike the, with Nelson, the press is willfully blind out of cowardice and with malicious intent. In her speech to the multitude at the Golden Globe, Streep was somewhat ironic when she said, quote, We need the principal press to hold power to account, to call them on the carpet for every outrage. That's why our founding fathers enshrined the press and its freedoms in our Constitution. So I only ask the famously well-heeled Hollywood Foreign Press and all of us in our community to join me in supporting the Committee to Protect Journalists, because we're going to need them going forward, and they'll need us to safeguard the truth." Unquote. Where was Streep demanding that the press investigate the Obama administration in Benghazi, or Fast and Furious, or Obamacare, or the IRS scandal targeting conservative groups, or with any of the myriad of scandals and fiascos of his government? Apparently, two other traits of the willfully blind are 
arrogance and hypocrisy. Extraterrestrials, strange phenomena, missing persons, lost continents, myths, and monsters. We examine these mysteries to determine are they bullshit or not? London's West End. Here, in the winter of 1888, a series of bizarre and violent murders occurred, which remain unsolved to this very day. Jack the Ripper. Was he a prosperous London surgeon? Perhaps a member of British royalty? Well, our bullshit team has unearthed spectacular new evidence which suggests that Jack the Ripper was, in fact, the Loch Ness Monster. Is it possible that Nessie murdered five streetwalkers before returning to Loch Ness? Using undiscovered evidence, we've pieced together the events leading up to the first murder. Although this is a bullshit reenactment, it may have happened just this way. Hello, dearie. Show you a good time for a quid. For the wife and for free. Oh, gents, don't you want a girl to keep you warm tonight? Oh, Mum told me there would be nights like this. Oh, my. You are a big one now, aren't you? Come on, darling. You be careful. Not so rough. To... Wait a minute. Is this the way it happened? Was Jack the Ripper, in fact, a 60-foot sea serpent from Scotland? Did I take this job for a quick buck? We may never know the answer to these questions. Next week. It is now indeed my great pleasure to introduce to you Fräulein Anna Gebhardt of the Propaganda Ministry. Bless you, little Fräulein Germanic! Your basic Germanic bird is sometimes very attractive. Oh, baby! I've heard that name before. Read it someplace. Gentlemen. The propaganda ministry is anxious to prove to the world that the Third Reich is observing the Geneva Prisoner of War Convention in every respect. Silence! It will mean the cooler to anyone who does not listen. Proceed, my dear. Thank you. My mission here is to interview as many of you as possible, record those interviews, and broadcast them on my show over Radio Berlin. You must be killed! I am already under contract to his majesty the king! Okay, Bart, I've got it. That's Axis Annie. She broadcasts the Allied troops. Axis Annie? The dame who sells desertion? In person, the whole bit. Democracy is finished. Give up, save yourself. 
Real morale booster. Boy, if my back wasn't taped, I'd like to punch her right in the nose. Pass the word along. Silence! Boy, if my back wasn't... <laughs> now, anyone who cooperates with Fräulein Gebhardt will be given special privileges, including two weeks of white bread and butter. Commandant, Fräulein, speaking for my men, we decline your generous offer. Colonel Hogan, in this case, it's just possible that you do not speak for your men. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all of our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. You can visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for your listening convenience and pleasure. Now, Robert, speaking of uh, fake news and, and true news that people don't want to believe, and here's one called Conspiracy Impossible. It reads the headline of a National Post feature that ran on February 1st of last year, 2016, and written by Abby Olheiser of the Washington Post. The byline or subhead read, the Internet's favorite conspiracy theories would involve too many people to stay secret. In fact, you just gave us a story about where people don't want to pay attention to the truth. And how many conspirators did that take to keep <laughs> exactly. it a secret, you see? So, so to me, that whole argument's false As to begin with. Yeah, you can go out there and, and reveal the secret and people and don't people, care. That's exactly what the re- reality of the situation is. But the argument begins with, quote, if NASA really faked the moon landing in 1969, about 411,000 people would have worked together to keep that information from the public, and the whole thing would have been exposed about four years later, according to an Oxford researcher who has found a mathematical way to examine the viability of conspiracy theories. Not another applied mathematician. (laughs) (laughs) David Robert Grimes is a physicist and cancer researcher, but he also writes science pieces for the Irish Times and The Guardian. As a science writer, he's used to being contacted by people who adhere to science-based conspiracy theories, which generally involve accusing the scientific community at large of colluding on fake data for nefarious purposes. Grimes wrote an equation to show how hard it would be to keep large-scale conspiracies, if they were true, a secret. For instance, more than 440,000 people would have to be working together to fool the public if climate change deniers are correct. Grimes' equation calculated that such a conspiracy would have been exposed either by an internal whistleblower or accidentally three years and nine months after it began. Recent research has shown that models like Grimes, however clever they are, probably won't do very much to sway the minds of those who are invested in these conspiracy beliefs. See, there's why nobody believes in the whole birther thing. We're invested. (laughs) (laughs) The Washington Post, Caitlin Dewey, put it this way while discussing hoax news sites in her final installment of the What Was Fake on the Internet series. Institutional distrust is so high right now and cognitive bias so strong always that the people who fall for hoax news stories are frequently only interested in consuming information that conforms with their views, even when it's demonstrably fake. Not everyone who believes in a conspiracy is unreasonable or unthinking, Grimes added in a statement accompanying his study. I hope that by showing how eye-wateringly unlikely some alleged conspiracies are, some people will reconsider their anti-science beliefs, end quote. Now, while this media tidbit is not quite fake news, since I have no reason not to believe that a person named Robert Grimes exists or has written such an equation, but all I want to ask after reading this, is it... Bullsh or not? 
Maybe he's a Loch Ness monster. <laughs> yeah. We've investigated the phenomenon of conspiracy theories on past occasions on the show, and it was quite easy to disprove as an axiom the idea that a conspiracy theory is invalid based simply on the fact that too many people are involved to keep it a secret. That's not how it works. And to argue that more than 440,000 people would have to be working together to fool the public if climate change deniers are correct is beyond the pale. Basing that figure on some ridiculous equation which cannot possibly reflect the political correctness inherent in that very statement makes the argument all the more ridiculous. But is it fake news? Climate change deniers? <laughs> Never met one yet. The state propaganda campaign on climate change is a fraud to its core, not the fact that climate change occurs. This is not based on an anti-science belief, which is yet another ridiculous claim, since all sides in the climate change debate rely on their own interpretations of that science to some degree. The government is currently in the position of arguing that mankind's production of CO2, of all things, is a greenhouse gas that's responsible for both any warming or cooling that we might experience, and no debate allowed because the science is settled. Yes, it's BS, and you can't deny that, I think. <laughs> Here's another item I ran across. It's not just Aleppo we've murdered, it's the truth. Published in the December 22nd headline National Post writer Terry Glavin's commentary. And referring to the fall of Aleppo, he writes, It is plainly and demonstrably untrue that the international community could not have done anything to save Syria. No other leader in the region, not Saddam Hussein in Iraq, nor Moha, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, has relied as heavily on propaganda as Assad, an in-depth Der Spiegel investigation concluded three years ago. The point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda, notes Garry Kasparov, the Russian chess master, human rights activist, and author of Winter is Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped, it is to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth, end quote. And, you know, I've got some bad news for people who are concerned with the murdering of truth. That's the goal of all government propaganda, censorship, and political correctness, and especially so in times of war. Now, here's another item I ran across. The power of true words in a fake news era. And this was the headline of the December 24th National Post editorial headline. And they wrote, quote, the good folks at Oxford Dictionaries have a word for the year. For 2016, the word was post-truth. Post-truth is an adjective denoting that objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion. Words mean what speakers want them to mean, no matter what their listeners might objectively hear. Indeed, listeners too insist words mean what they have heard, not what the speaker might have intended. But the idea that words are just words, waiting for us to assign them whatever meaning we wish, is an old philosophical error. Words have meanings, and those meanings are about real things. This is how ordinary people thought until the day before yesterday. <laughs> now led by activists on those lamentable university campuses, words are invented to correspond to realities that are newly discovered and insisted upon. Our words are meant to be true. For if our words do not convey the truth about reality, we lose our connection with that reality. Wow. Isn't that amazing thing to, to, to see in a newspaper? <laughs> yes. Now, here's a voice of desperation who to me sounds a lot like Meryl Streep with her appeal to join me in forming a committee to protect journalists type of thing, right? <laughs> 
And listen to this. This is the headline. News may need strength in numbers, wrote the London Free Press's Larry Cornies in his January 7th commentary. In writing about how U.S. news media should prepare for the presidency of Donald Trump, Cornies uh, cites American media critic Jay Rosen, who published a two-part series at PressThink.org titled Winter is Coming which coincidentally bears the same title mm-hmm. as Gary Kasparov's book. Is that a coincidence? And points to Rosen's astute observations on the economic crisis in most news companies that has left journalism in a weakened state, the rise of online trolls that aim to bend reality, and the open disdain of the president-elect for news organizations and the veri- verifiable facts and data upon which their work is built. Timeless journalistic principles, the organizations that apply them, and the practices that have proven so durable over the past century will be stress-tested in the years to come, he writes. The new nativism condones anti-immigrant sentiments and permissive racism. The proclivity of certain individuals and political interests for truth and fact-bending messaging designed to mislead, confound, and confuse ordinary news consumers. But I don't understand. He's describing today's newspapers yeah, and des- television. describing himself a lot, too. Yeah. I mean, this, this is mob journalism he wants. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Journalists will need to show their work in the future during the Trump years, he says, and post more evidence to back their statements, inferences, and conclusions. Journalists will need to be more widely distributed with important stories, more dependent on ad hoc coalitions of the willing. And finally, he says, journalism will require bravery and integrity, the type that can stand up to public denigration, scorn, ridicule, and vilification by personal, partisan, and corporate interests. I guess he's talking about us. Yeah, I was talking about everybody except them, you know. It's it's, true. It's like he's saying, it's the media versus the public. That's what Streep said too, by the way, yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if the establishment news media intends to go to war against its own readers, particularly those nativists who support Trump. Like Meryl Streep, Cornies thinks it's only the establishment media that must safeguard the truth. The very fact that all of these noble and fundamental principles of the fourth estate are only now being discussed in the light of Donald Trump, never came up before as an issue, already tells me that nothing has changed and that we can expect that the fourth estate will continue earning the public denigration, scorn, ridicule, and vilification that has been the consequence of its reporting on numerous issues over the past years. And when Corny cites verifiable facts and data upon which their work is built as being a cornerstone of journalism, remember that verifiable facts and data are not the same as the truth. As we've illustrated many times before on our show, facts, even accurate ones, can obscure the truth and distract from the focus of discussion. The truth or falsehood is in the story. The facts or stats that accompany the story are secondary, even if they are critical and essential. The nature of the harm done by falsehoods extends beyond the obvious lies. At the root of a falsehood lies an attempt to gain the consent or agreement of another person by obviating the condition of consent, which must be an informed consent to be legitimate in the first place. No, Kurt, you know better than to come to my office to make a complaint. Send it through Colonel Hogan. Dismiss! Excuse me, Herr Commandant, but Newkirk does not want to complain. He wants to make an appointment with Berlin Betty. What? You want an appointment with Berlin Betty? Oh, what you go and tell him for, Schultz? I'm wanting to surprise him. Oh, Newkirk, 
Congratulations. <laughs> you made a wise decision. Thank you, sir. Frankly, I knew it would be an Englishman, not a Frenchman or an American. <laughs> Fortunately, you come from a country that has no pride. There <laughs> <coughs> is just one thing, sir. I would like this to remain our little secret. I know nothing. Your secret is safe with me. Von Hilde, get me how Goebbels in Berlin. Goebbels? Oh, yes, I want to tell the good news to the propaganda minister personally. Uh, sir, just a minute. I don't want any fuss made. I don't want any medals or anything like that. I'm offering to do this to save the lives of my countrymen. Did you hear that, Schultz? There's a man with heart. Max, I'm telling you, he's fine. He's been sharp all day. It's been funny as hell. And everybody cracking up with the rundown meeting. I told him. I told him. Up. QBTA. Ready to. Cue announcer. The UBS Evening News. Ready to. With Howard Beale. Take two, cue Howard. Last night, I was awakened from a fitful sleep shortly after 2 o'clock in the morning by a shrill sibilant, faceless voice. I couldn't make it out at first in the dark bedroom. And I said, I'm sorry, you'll have to talk a little louder. What do you want me to do? Nothing. And the voice said to me, I want you to tell the people the truth. Not an easy thing to do because the people don't want to know the truth. And I said, you're kidding. What the hell should I know about the truth? But the voice said to me, don't worry about the truth. I will put the words in your mouth. And I said, what is this, the burning bush? For God's sake, I'm not Moses. And the voice said to me, and I'm not God. What has that got to do with it? And the voice said to me, we're not talking about eternal truth or absolute truth or ultimate truth. We're talking about impermanent, transient human truth. I don't expect you people to be capable of truth, but God damn it, at least you're capable of self-preservation. And I said, why me? And the voice said, because you're on television, dummy. You have 40 million Americans listening to you, and after the show, you could have 50 million. For Pete's sake, I'm not asking you to walk the land in sackcloth and ashes preaching the Armageddon. You're on TV, man. So I thought about it for a moment. And then I said, okay. Well, we'd certainly like to all believe that the responsibility that comes with informing the public through some force of mass communication like TV would have as its number one axiom some commitment to the reporting of the truth. Let's not forget a lesson we've learned and reviewed on several past broadcasts. Again, facts are not truth. The truth, or falsehood, is in the story, in the narrative that takes into account all the elements of truth, facts, reasonableness, contexts, motivations, whatever might be relevant to the story. We talk about news stories, not about news facts, though lately it's been more of the latter, and as a result we seem to know less about the truth than we did before. And the term impermanent transient human truth, as it was used by the movie character Howard Beale, is a contradiction in terms. A truth, by definition, and both in theory and practice, cannot be either impermanent or transient. All truths are eternal and absolute. What is impermanent or transient are people themselves. Life itself is impermanent and transient, and it is for that very reason that values arose, values that could only be validated by life itself and by the quality of that life. 
So what we just heard from Howard Beale on his UBS network, as they called it, was at best an expression of pragmatism. And it's on a pragmatic note that I'd like to close the show off today with Robert. Over the holidays, I was sent uh, an essay on Trump as a pragmatist candidate written by Michael Massey. Trump is not a liberal or a conservative. He's a pragmatist. And then he defines a pragmatist as someone who is practical and focused on reaching a goal. A pragmatist uh, usually has a straightforward, matter-of-fact approach and doesn't let emotion distract him or her. He writes, and I'm just summarizing some of his key points here, he says, it was my opinion that Trump's a pragmatist. He doesn't see the problem as liberal or conservative. He sees it only as a problem. That is a quality that should be admired and applauded, not condemned. Viewing problems from a liberal perspective has resulted in the creation of more problems. Viewing things according to the so-called Republican conservative perspective has brought continued spending and globalism, and it has also brought liberal ideology with a pachyderm as a mascot juxtaposed to the ass of the Democratic Party. Immigration isn't a Republican problem. It isn't a Democratic problem. It's a problem that threatens the fabric of America. It demands a pragmatic approach. The intending collapse of the economy isn't a liberal or conservative problem. It's an American problem that demands a common-sense approach to make things work. And so he says, as a pragmatist, Donald Trump hasn't made wild pie-in-the-eye promises of a cell phone in every pocket, free tuition, etc., etc. Pragmatists see a problem and find ways to fix them. You may not like Donald Trump, but I suspect the main reason that people do not like him and then they list a bunch, but among them, key reasons is that he is someone who is free of political ideology. <laughs> he says, we've had Democrats and Republican ideologies, and what has that brought us? A steady decline brought on by both parties. I submit that a pragmatist might be what America needs right now. And that's basically his argument. Now, I have mixed feelings about this essay because I, I tend to share the spirit of what the writer is trying to convey about his hopes for Trump as a pragmatist. But I get that red alert spidey sense whenever I hear people praise pragmatists as if pragmatists were something rare. Because here's my take on this. I would argue that everybody's a pragmatist and that being pragmatic is not the thing that can or will define any distinguishing characteristics contrasting non-pragmatists with pragmatists. The argument that pragmatists don't have an ideology is false. One thing I noticed about this essay was that the word pragmatism was not mentioned even once. The writer was, in effect, comparing an agent of action, a pragmatist, with the theories that drive that action by referring to those theories as conservative, liberal, republican. And, of course, pragmatism as a theory of action is not mentioned. I refer, we, we, the last time we talked about this issue of pragmatists was all, way back in 2009, believe it or not. That's how long it's been. And at that time, I called pragmatists the drunk drivers of philosophy, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I've argued many times before on this show about how pragmatism, which many believe to be something akin to being practical, is not what it is. Pragmatism is just an expedient f term for expedience. <laughs> by itself, pragmatism is a road leading to irrationalism. Note I stressed by itself. Pragmatism does not exist in a vacuum of ideas attached only to goals and objectives. How does one determine the correct or desirable objective to begin with? As a philosophy, pragmatism was most widely attributed to William James. 
and it was he that gave pragmatism its name. Dr. Leonard Peikoff, in his 1970 essay, Dogmatism, Pragmatism, and Nazism, refers to the voluntarist view that action, not thought or intellect, has primacy. The elements of this epistemology are implicit and frequently explicit in the writings of mid- and late-19th-century European irrationalists, most notably Schopenhauer, Marx, Nietzsche, and Bergson. It is, however, in America, in the writings of William James, that this epistemology first reached conscious, systematic, philosophic expression and found its enduring name and definition. So he sees pragmatism as a, you know, is the form of voluntarist anti-intellectualism, which declares that the concept of external reality or of objective fact is invalid, that thought is strictly an action-oriented function to be measured by its practical results. For a pragmatist, an idea's truth is not determined by the idea's relation to fact. An idea is defined as true if and to the extent that it quote-unquote works, enables men to achieve in practice whatever goals they have. Sounds very deterministic or animalistic, like an animal would behave pragmatically. Very much. Quote, the pragmatism of William James, said Mussolini in an interview in 1926, was of great use to me in my political career. James taught me that action should be judged rather by its results than by its doctrinaire basis. I learned of James that faith in action, that, ar that ardent will to live and fight to which fascism owes a great part of its success. For me, the essential thing was to act. John McMurray notes that the proposal to start from the primacy of the practical does not mean that we should aim at the practical rather than the theoretical philosophy. What it does mean is that we should think from the standpoint of action. Philosophy is necessarily theoretical and must aim at a theoretical strictness. It does not follow that we must theorize from the standpoint of theory. He says we're apt to think that the practical standpoint excludes the theoretical, as the theoretical excludes the practical. But this reveals that we're still thinking from a theoretical standpoint. Interesting here, he says, in thinking the mind alone is active. In acting, the body is indeed active, but also the mind. Action is not blind, to speak to your blindness concept. <laughs> the concept of action is inclusive. Action without thought is a self-contradictory conception, he writes. Which again makes thought, the, th the theory, primary. You, know, you can think without acting. You cannot act without thinking. No part of your body will voluntarily move unless your mind instructs it to, regardless of how unaware of the process you might be at the time. Pragmatism demands that we compromise our thinking, which inevitably leads to things like thought crime. Now let's examine these principles as contrasted to Mr. Massey's essay on pragmatism in which he insists that Donald Trump is a pragmatist, something which I myself contend, if true, does not distinguish Trump from any other politician. This is especially true if I use the definition provided by the writer that a pragmatist is someone who's practical and focused on reaching their goal. Well, all politicians are pragmatists in, in their reaching their goals. Pragmatism is secondary to the ideology on which the pragmatism is based. As I've illustrated before, you could ask a left-winger and a right-winger what would be the most practical thing to do for providing housing for the poor. The left-wing pragmatist might argue that politicians should spend more tax dollars on social housing, provide subsidies to the poor for affordable housing. 
The right-wing pragmatist might argue that taxes should be lowered on housing construction and development, that there should be fewer restrictions on land use or population density, such as the case with granny flats and things like that, or having more private rental accommodations available, etc. Now, the ideologically rational pragmatist might argue that, quote, providing housing for the poor is not something politicians should be concerning, concerning themselves with, that maybe poverty itself should be addressed in a way that would not interfere with the law of supply and demand in the housing market. So, which of these three differing alternatives is the pragmatic thing to do? Which is practical? Which is right? Compounding the ideological confusion is the fact that both Republicans and Democrats are on the left of the political spectrum, and hence the negative consequences that were mentioned. But the problem isn't that the politicians who have screwed up are ideological. It's that they're practicing the wrong ideology in order to achieve the goals that the writer thinks are important. But the Democrats were perfectly pragmatic in attaining their goals with Obamacare and a host of other economically destructive policies. Very pragmatic. Just pass the damn law. All right, do it. Who cares? Donald Trump is no more or less a pragmatist than any other politicians and pundits, no matter what their ideologies. Each of his policies will be of necessity based on some idea. And the ology that might be attached to that idea depends on the idea itself. You can apply this principle to almost every possible political issue, and it's always been that mankind has always fared best when governed by principles and principled statesmen, never by pragmatists. There's an old political joke that goes something along the lines of a politician saying, principles? I have principles. I've got lots of them. <laughs> right? <laughs> Pragmatist or not? Where Trump ultimately ends up sitting on the ideological scale within the context of his presidency has yet to be seen or determined. Politicians have a challenge in getting votes that is somewhat unique in the sense that they're trying to get the consent and support of a large mass of people who really have no understanding or no way of understanding all of the issues they're being asked to vote on. And there's no way for the masses to even know about the issues they're being asked to make decisions about. This forces many political discussions into the field of allegory and stories that convey a greater truth than just the facts or sometimes just fake news for those who have sinister political objectives. That may not be news, but that too is reality. So the bottom line for news consumers, as always, is buyer beware. Anything else to add, Robert? I know nothing. I see nothing. <laughs> okay. Well, our time's just about up, and it appears that both Robert and I have managed to fake it through to the end of yet another broadcast. Join us as we do it again for you next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright. I assure you, prisoners, this comedy is over. <laughs> Do you want to tell me about it? Or will I be forced to drag it out of you? Very well. No one will speak. I shall question you more closely. This can be explained. Yes, I shall enjoy hearing you explain. Take him away. I am Major General Hans Stoffel, commander of the 9th Armored Division, Africa Corps. So, the Africa Corps has changed uniform? I can explain this. Think, explain this. Explain what? That I am General Stoffel, your old classmate. Tell him. Well, 
seeing? He, he resembles my old classmate, but <laughs> that's such a long time ago. Drink! Ask this man. He got me the uniform. Never saw him before in my life. <laughs> Just a minute! If I'm not with my troops in the morning, you shall have to answer for this. Of course. But first we must find out just what those troops are. In our Berlin headquarters, we have facilities for sifting out the truth. There is no time for this. For the truth, there is always time. Take him away. Shut up, Dash! 